Hi, I'm Michaela McGuirk-Scalaro and you're listening to City Road. The 2023 Festival of Urbanism has provided us with some fascinating panel discussions that confront the many contested views on our cities and urban regions. In this session, housing advocates and experts debate the proposition that supply-side barriers are to blame for Australia's housing crisis and recommend strategies to fix the housing system by tackling the great YIMBY versus NIMBY debate. We'll hear from Eamon Waterford, the CEO for the Committee for Sydney, Dr Max Hatheran, lecturer in social policy, Melissa Neighbour, the principal planner at Sky Planning, Professor Peter Phibbs, and Michael Cozio, Sydney editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. I'll let Professor Nicole Garan start us off. Before we begin tonight, I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and, of course, on which the University of Sydney's campuses stand, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, I pay my respects to the traditional owners of these lands, past, present and emerging, And indeed, I thank all of the First Nations leaders who have been working tirelessly at the moment and at great personal cost at this important time in the lead up to the referendum on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament. Um, And on that note, I um, I do want to point out that many of the schools here at the University of Sydney, including the Sydney Law School and Architecture, Design and Planning, have made strong statements in support of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament. So having said that, it is my great privilege to welcome you here to the Festival of Urbanism, which is organised by the Henry Halloran Research Trust. We're a cross-university research centre dedicated to fostering new research, new researchers in a cross-disciplinary way to look at issues facing cities, regions and places and to promote evidence-informed dialogue between researchers, government, uh, policymakers, professional industry and, of course, the wider community. And the Festival of Urbanism, which is now in its 10th year, um, thanks to many of you in this room, actually, who've made it such a wonderful and enduring event. Um, but that, this festival is one of the um, public programs that we um, that we use to promote uh, this evidence-informed dialogue. Now, tonight's debate on housing supply, which we've alternatively titled the Yimbi Nimbi debate is very much in keeping with this year's Festival of Urbanism theme because we are looking... Our theme for the year is the Festival of Contested Urbanism. And it's kind of hard to think, really, of a more contested topic in Australia, but indeed internationally, um, than the housing question. Let me just briefly remind you why the stakes are so high. We've got the research tells us we need around 750,000 new social and affordable housing dwellings over the next 20 years to meet backlog and forecast demand. Meanwhile, we're not subsidising the low-income renters who are currently living in the private rental sector, the 1.3 low-income rental households who are receiving Commonwealth rent assistance. Of those, nearly half are still in rental stress. Um, 
Meanwhile, they're contending with, you know, potential eviction notices and, of course, chronically uh, tight rental vacancy rates. We've got 175,000 Australian households waiting for social housing. They'll be waiting a very long time because while our new national plan is for 1.2 million uh, dwellings over the next five years, governments are directly supporting only a fraction of these with the centrepiece being the uh, Housing Affordability Fund passed uh, last week with plans to finance around 30,000 social and affordable homes over the next five years, maybe another six via the Social Housing Accelerator. Now, meanwhile, in New South Wales, we know we need 375,000 homes, according to the uh, government's data. Over the next five years, we've got 55,000 households on the waiting list. New South Wales budget yesterday uh, says all the right things, actually, and that's a very nice thing to acknowledge. Um, however, it didn't fund very much, and certainly it didn't fund very much in the way of social or affordable housing. Has announced, um, and thanks to Michael Alcoziel um, in the front row here, his analysis in the City Morning Herald today, by his figures, the 5,000 homes to be built by government land developer Lancom over the next, um, well, little while to 2039, um, rounds out at about 90 um, affordable homes uh, per year, so um, all right. Um, meanwhile, of course, 1.2 million taxpayers are negatively gearing their 2.2 million, uh, million investment properties, and the total value of Australia's housing stock is now at 10 trillion dollars, that's our 11 million homes, rising since this time in 2019, just before COVID, when it was around 7 trillion. So with all that said, I can't tell you how much I hope the answer to our housing problem is increasing housing supply. And that's before we even ask if we can deliver it, because that has actually been only the solution that governments are talking about. But we are not about hope here at the University of Sydney. We're not only about hope, and we're certainly not just about the vibe. We're about evidence-informed analysis and insight and opening our minds to challenging some of our perhaps preconceived ideas. And I'll put my hand up to say, you know, I've got some pretty fixed views when it comes to housing. So tonight's debate adopts a format that began in Oxford. Yes, we are a sandstone, ivory tower institution. It's known as the IQ2 or Intelligence Squared debate, and I can see so many intelligent people here in the room. Well, we're, we're quadrupled, Peter, or what's the maths term for, you know, the number of intelligent people here in the room? I don't know, but it's, you know, mind-boggling. And we are all here, potentially, to have our minds changed, influenced by our four speakers and our hard-hitting journalists in the front row. The format is as such. We have two speakers for and against the uh, proposition, which we're showing right now. And um, what we're going to do is we're going to poll you, our intelligent audience, ahead of the debate, find out where you stand on this proposition and then after you've heard all of the arguments, we're going to ask you again. And we'll see who's carried the overall argument, and we've also seen 
who's changed the most minds. But we'll begin um, by introducing first speaker um, for the yes side of the debate is Melissa Neighbour. Now, Melissa is a self-described radical free thinker. I wish I had that description for myself. I think I'll borrow it, but I love it. And she's a card-carrying, trailblazing town planner, one of the founders of Sydney's Yimby Yes in My Backyard movement, as I understand it. Now, second speaker. Speaking on the no side, enigmatically, is Dr Max Halloran. And I say enigmatic because Max has actually written a book on this subject. It's called Yes to the City, Millennials and the Fight for Affordable Housing. And the publisher's tagline is a fascinating account of the growing Yes in My Backyard urban movement. Now, our other speaker on the Yes side, well known to many of you, I'm sure, Eamon Waterford, CEO of the Committee for Sydney, which describes itself, and actually, you know, I agree with this description, of Lydney, as Sydney's leading urban policy think tank. And I actually do commend some of your leading work on housing. And I also commend their general superpowers in bringing diverse voices together, even to consensus on many occasions. So, now... I think we need the slide that shows the photos of it. Thank you. Now, our final speaker for the no side was advertised to be wildcard Luke Cass, Generation Y warrior, editor of, and I've even got a copy here somewhere. Oh, someone's taken it. There it is. Editor of the radical student mag on his swan. He is also, oh, did I forget, prize-winning debater and expert inter-varsity uh, debate adjudicator. But he's not here. <laughs> so I will pause for a moment if anyone needs to leave. <laughs> if you came for Luke. And on a serious note, he's not here because he's in hospital. So we wish him very well. But that left me with a great dilemma. You can imagine, people, how difficult. And I can see the yes side clapping. But come on. News came through last night. I had less than 24 hours to find a replacement for our champion Gen Y debater, Luke Cass. How hard can it be to stack the odds a little bit in Max's favour? And find a NIMBY. I'm a NIMBY. This is Sydney. <laughs> NIMBYs are supposed to be everywhere, at least according to the Sydney Morning Herald. So all I needed was, and now I'm going to resort to central casting. Please, I'm sorry if I offend, well, our next speaker. Because all I needed was a white, middle-class baby boomer. <laughs> <laughs> and none other than Professor Emeritus Peter Phibbs who also happens to be my predecessor, the um, inaugural um, director of the Henry Hallen Research Trust, and even the father of the Festival of Urbanism, believe it or not. And he also happens to know a little bit about housing, and right now I can see the other side looking a little bit less confident. But anyway, Michael Cosio. 
whom many of you will know from his very insightful journalism. Before becoming the Sydney editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, he was a federal political reporter in Canberra, and I think we're actually lucky to have someone with that nous covering urban affairs in Sydney. And I certainly commend today's piece, which I've already called out to you, on housing and the budget. And now let me tell you the order of proceedings. We're going to hear from each of our speakers in turn, and then Michael's going to interrogate them on your behalf for about 10 minutes, and then we're going to give them a chance to have a final, very short last word. And then, intelligent audience, we're going to poll you again and see how many of you have truly opened your minds, allowed them to be persuaded by our incredible panel of speakers. So now, having shared probably a little bit too much of my own prejudices, and certainly um, apologies if I've already offended anybody, it's time um, to tell you the rules of the debate. And this is where Luke has helped me out. He's over the rule book for the Sydney University Debating Society. It's here if we run into any um, trouble. But I've boiled it down to two rules. The first is we need to keep it nice. Okay, I think I've already broken that rule, but I'm going to try harder. Um, you all need to too. We are not in Parliament. Uh, and the second is we're going to keep to time. Our speakers have eight minutes each. Um, luckily, we're here in the beautiful um, museum, and I was actually able, before you arrived, to raid the antiquities cabinet. And I found this beautiful uh, ancient, you know, Tibetan uh, singing bowl. Oh, hang on. I think you've got to do it this way. I didn't practice, obviously, but... Okay, that will be the, the um, sound that our speakers hear at uh, the six-minute warning mark, and will be the sound when it's time to absolutely stop. So with that, um, over to you, Melissa. Okay, can I get a show of hands for anyone who thinks that housing is way too freaking expensive? Yeah? Excellent, great, we can skip the establishing statistics. <laughs> the cost of housing is leading to a host of social problems. Homelessness, research clearly demonstrates, rises with the cost of housing. Families are sleeping in tents and cars. Students are hotbedding. And no, that's not some new trend in extreme sleepovers. It's the reality of multiple students sharing beds at different hours just to afford the rent. The only way young families can get a deposit for a house these days is through inherited wealth. Society, as a result, is splitting in two. As lucky homeowners get wealthier and the rest of us struggle to even afford Avo on toast. The housing problem in Sydney is equally, though, a crisis of affordability as it is one of livability and sustainability. People are pushed into suburban sprawl where they're burning fossil fuels for two to three hours just to get to work every day and they don't get to see their kids during the week. People are being forced to live in places where temperatures are up to 10 degrees hotter than what they are at the coast. We believe that housing abundance, building more homes where people want to live, is key to solving this multifaceted housing problem. Abundance gives everyone greater choice in where they want to live. It makes landlords afraid to lose their tenants. Can you even imagine? It encourages public infrastructure, it boosts local business, and it's better and more sustainable than sprawl. Now, 
To have abundance, we need housing supply to exceed demand. But we've seen decades of abject failure on this front. If we look at this graph, we can see completions peaked in 1970, just before the advent of the modern planning system, and have never recovered. Public, private, social, the whole lot, we're not building enough of anything. Why? Planning restrictions prevent, prevent density, increased density. Now, if you think about it, why is it that we're seeing 24-storey buildings going up in Blacktown but not in Stanmore? Why do we see new apartments going up in Leichhardt but 100 metres away in Haberfield we've got an entire suburb which is just houses on 800 square metre blocks? Well, it's not because the economics don't stack up. It's not because developers don't want to build in these places. It's because government planners, aided and abetted by wealthy homeowners, have set the limitations. Height limits, floor space ratios, heritage conservation areas, minimum lot sizes, all of these po policies prevent, have, ex uh, sorry, all of these policies have the explicit outcome that prevent density. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia did some math to quantify this exact effect. And they found that planning restrictions are inflating the cost of, of detached houses in Sydney by a whopping 73% and apartments by 68%. Some pretty staggering figures. And it shows that even modest reforms to the planning system, like, I don't know, maybe something crazy, like allowing six storeys around a train station, would have some real enormous impacts on our housing market. And we've seen this happen in the real world. Now, Auckland allowed medium density housing citywide in 2016. And five years after that reform, construction doubled, housing stock increased by 5%, and as a result, rents fell 14 to 35%, and prices fell 20% relative to what was expected otherwise. Now, there'll be heterodox economists who dispute this, and they'll hold it up as a shield by those who don't want it to be true. They'll want to convince us that we can somehow solve our housing problem without changing our urban environment. Planning restrictions prevent increased density, they limit supply and, market, and make making housing very expensive. There's an enormous amount of research supporting this, and just as all of us would insist that climate policy or vaccination policy should be based on the best research, well, in housing policy, that research is telling us that planning restrictions need to be released to increase housing supply. Extra supply doesn't just reduce the average cost of housing. It also and especially benefits those most in need. So one argument we often hear is that by building affordable housing is the only way to increase affordability, that market rate dwellers will simply, dwellings will simply go to people on higher incomes, leaving lower income earners high and dry. But research shows us extra housing helps low income tenants even if the new dwellings are initially expensive. So recent studies from the US, Finland and the US uh, all sorry, from US, Swin uh, Sweden and Finland, all demonstrate that almost, although most people who move directly into new unsubsidised housing may come from the top half of earners, the chain of moves triggered by their purchase frees up housing in the same cities for people on lower incomes. So lower prices and rents ripple throughout the market. The research is very clear on this, and to quote the title of the Financial Times where this graph came from, repeat after me, building any new homes reduces housing costs for all. 
Now, planning controls is a great lever that we can pull to get more supply. But I'm not saying that if we just fix the planning system that we will solve the affordability problem. We know it's more layered than that. Interest rates, tax and many other policy levers are at play. But if we don't allow the system to facilitate more development and approve more dwellings, then we've lost this fight before it has even begun. I don't want to simplify the matter, though, by saying that if we match planning approvals to housing targets, we're going to solve this housing problem. Far from it. Approvals cannot and will not ever equal supply. And to perpetuate this belief that they are one and the same is counterproductive to solving our housing problem. The argument lacks an appreciation of the practical realities of acting on approvals. And there's many reasons why they may not go ahead. The finance may not stack up taxation settings, sales rates, profitability and other market factors. But what it means is that we must have a significantly higher number of approvals to enable the amount of housing we need to be delivered on the ground. Now, the Committee for Sydney did a report that found our planning system needs to build in capacity seven times any housing delivery target. The market realities and development practicalities of delivering a new dwelling on the ground have to be appreciated, accepted and factored into our planning system, rather than pontificating idealism. Because in Australia, the, ma the market is the main channel for delivering new dwellings, rightly or wrongly. And so we need to support it with the right planning policies to allow it to thrive. Otherwise, housing won't get built in the first place. To wrap up, the RBA found planning restrictions raise the cost of houses in Sydney by 73% and apartments by 68%. We need to change the planning controls so the market can thrive, do its thing, deliver more housing in existing suburbs with existing infrastructure where people need and want to live. And we need to halt open sprawl in doing so. Increased supply helps all renters and buyers, especially those on low incomes. So that's good news because if you want to improve availability and affordability, any new housing will help. So let's make Sydney the best it can be for everyone. Say yes in my backyard. So this will be a bit difficult because I agree with much of what Melissa just said. Um, but I want to focus on some of the nuances here. And the big nuance that I want to get at is this idea that supply fixes everything. And that is the kind of crux of the question, is will supply fix affordability? And my answer is no. And I want to bring us back just a little bit to this idea of supply-side economics, which is present in the idea of supply-side housing and how that worked out in the 1980s. And this economic growth and the kind of focus on production and goods as prioritized um, over jobs and the people who work them as merely ancillary to the economic process, I think was a big mistake. And I think that kind of free market fundamentalism is something that we could bear in mind if we're going to repeat that mistake when it comes to uh, the fields of housing and urban planning. So in my mind, the housing crisis, it's not just a dip in the stock of affordable housing and, uh, here in Australia. It's not just about the, the lack of the stock of homes. It's not just about government and red tape. It's really a human crisis, and it's about people's needs, and those needs must be examined. And so what I'm going to say here is that it's convenient to look at housing, but we also very much need to look at wages and the cost of living to fully understand the situation that we're in today.
So let me talk about some of the problems that confront us when we have this kind of supply side fundamentalism. One, new units can really disappear into the market, whether it's Airbnb or it's investment properties or it's pied-à-terres or it's student housing. The idea that rising housing supply lifts all Australians um, really is not true and it really ignores the fact that there are some of us who need housing more and some of us who need housing right now. Um, I also think that we like to imagine a market of unlimited private financing for housing. And Melissa's completely right. We do build things through the private market, predominantly here in Australia. But that model can be changed, and that model can also fail in the face of an economic crisis and if private financing does dry up. Um, and last, I want to say that we hope that affordability will be built into these new developments. But that's not necessarily true. We don't have anything like inclusionary zoning here in Australia. So we negotiate for affordability in every new development on an ad hoc basis and hope that it will go according to plan. And as the evidence shows, it just really has not. Um, and last, I want to say that the time frame for fixing the problem of affordability with more building, with more construction, is just not there. It's going to take eons to do this. We have some evidence from New York, and this evidence shows that with a 10% increase in market rate housing within 150 meters of a specific neighborhood, you see a 1% decrease in rents in that neighborhood. Just think about that. That means that if you want to see a 20% decrease in rents in your neighborhood, you would have to build 200% of the existing housing stock. I also want to say when it comes to this kind of supply-side skepticism, which I'm going to uh, sort of sell to you tonight, that the context is wrong. Those who are really bullish about growth alone, those who describe themselves as yes in my backyard and see supply as the major problem, are oftentimes taking on a distinctly American point of view, a movement that was conceived of in the United States and one that responds to uniquely American conditions. So as you can tell, from my accent, I also was conceived in the United States, and I don't want to make this a big party of American bashing and kind of yank hatred, um, because I have to get out of this room in one piece at the end of the night. But I do want to say that there are some situations in the housing market and in this problem that are uniquely American, and that the YIMBY movement responds to, which are not present here in Australia. First of all, the YIMBY movement responds to historic racial barriers of redlining, restricted covenants, blockbusting, and biased lending, which we do not see here. We also have a far more prevalent system of single-family zoning across entire neighborhoods in the United States, which is not as prevalent here in Australia, although it is still a big problem. Um, I also want to point out that what if the market builds in the wrong places? We think about the free market as always addressing people's needs and their desires, but that's not always the case. We have evidence from Brisbane that shows that even with the liberalization of planning laws, even with infill and upzoning to create higher density development, that 94% of these new sites remained unutilized after five years. So I think it's a great thing to have upzoning. I think that we need to have more intensive land use. We need to have more vertical development. Um, but that, to use the language of statistics, is necessary but not sufficient to solve this crisis. Um, 
I also would like to point our attention to other booming housing markets that have increased supply and where that has not worked out. The contemporary situation in China, or 15 years ago in Ireland and Spain and the American state of Nevada, where the stock of housing went up dramatically, but the problem was that the market alone did not address where people wanted to live and where they wanted to work, and therefore was not something that solved the affordability crisis. Um, I also want to say, when it comes to my skepticism about the supply side argument, that oftentimes I find us talking about homes as a really visible and a really tangible um, sort of uh, issue, because it's right there in front of us. But what if homes and housing is not actually the problem, and it more has to do with wages or the cost of living? So Tim Gurner has recently alerted us to the fecklessness of the Australian worker who's coddled by COVID handouts and drunk on their hatred for the boss. And, and thank you, Tim, for that wonderful um, social, sociological survey that you've done. Um, I, I want to say, but underneath this kind of moral browbeating from the billionaire class really rises another big question. I think a question that's pertinent to what we're talking about tonight, which is the question of wage stagnation. So if you look at how tight the job market is right now, really tight job market, and yet real wages in the private sector have only grown by 3.7%. For the past 10 years, they were at 2%. So if we can look at these anemic wage gains, that can also help to explain why supply alone is not what we're talking about. Um, and last, I want to say that this kind of build, baby, build rallying cry of, of yimbyism, it's a really good start. It increases density. It decreases car dependence. And it creates vibrant neighborhoods. But it's only one thing. And it's not the only thing that stands between Australians and affordability. And I would really urge us to look at rental stress, even in areas that have grown significantly, to look at the growth of homelessness, even in demographic populations like those over 65, where it hasn't happened before, and also um, to consider uh, gig work and the precarious state of the labor market. So let me just say that supply-side thinking it seems like a really good technical fix. It's so simple, it appears almost too good to be true. And that's because it's not. Hello. This is going to be one of those hilarious debates where we all thoroughly agree with each other, but obviously my opposition are completely wrong on everything. <laughs> um, I, both speeches that we've heard tonight were just so smart. I'm... I'm, I'm um, Thoroughly in agreement with both of them. However, I think it is incumbent upon me to point out a couple of errors in the, for, in the previous speaker's uh, speech. Um, one point I wanted to note, uh, you know, we do need to have a conversation about wages in this, in this country, but Sydney's um, house prices are unaffordable even accounting for wages. You know, we have a wage to house price ratio in Sydney of about 13 to 1. So you've got to spend your entire... The median average income earner has to spend their wage for 13 years straight to afford the median house. So even when accounting for wages... Wages quite high in Sydney at the moment, at least according, compared to Australia. House prices are just a multiple much, much greater. The only city in the world that's got a higher multiple is Hong Kong at about 18. But, you know, you look at cities like London and New York and cities that you might traditionally consider as more unaffordable than Sydney, their ratios are much lower than us. And at over eight is considered unaffordable. So 13. We're at eight. 
15 years ago. We've been unaffordable for a very, very long time. Um, the other point I wanted to note is, you know, it's true we don't have as much single um, single household density in, in, in Australia, like uh, uh, so single family... I've forgotten the, the, the American term. But it is also worth pointing out that Sydney is an incredibly sprawling city. We are incredibly low density. We're a third of the density of LA. We're about an eighth of the density of London. This is a city that sprawls for donkey's years. Like, it is just absurd that we have a city that is 80 kilometres wide with only 5 million people in it. That is, you know, geographically perverse and, you know, um, globally unusual. So, with all of that in mind, um, they're completely wrong, we're completely right. Supply. Um, you know, this is, a, like, we do need to be a bit sort of, like, you know, absurd, but, like, there is some nuance to this. But my, my, my premise today is that we need more houses of all types, and the only way to get those houses in the current system in, in Australia and in Sydney is through the private sector delivering those. So we need more supply because it is the only thing that will solve the affordability crisis that Sydney is currently facing, and it is a crisis. Uh, it's good to be back at Sydney University. Um, I did my Masters of Political Economy at Sydney Uni and I learnt all sorts of um, heterodox economic theories while I was here. I consider myself a heterodox economist myself. Um, but, you know, this can be useful to think about economic theories when we're talking about complex issues like housing because it gives you a lens and a framework to think about how you solve the problem. So we could take a libertarian, a liberal perspective on housing and say, well, what's the problem? Well, it's government. We need to get government out of the way and we need to uh, get rid of planning controls and we need to get government to stop sort of blocking the housing. And certainly that is a valid perspective that um, other people on the table have articulated and it is the perspective of the productivity Commission and it is the perspective of the Centre for Independent Studies and it's the perspective of the Grattan Institute. This is not an unusual perspective, it is a perspective that's worth discussing. There is another economic theory we could throw at this, we could look, we could be Marxists for a moment, we could think about, well, actually this is something that the market is completely unable to solve for, that the government's role is to, to deal with social outcomes, that there are human rights and um, intentional government action that's required to deliver housing for people by right. Um, and and in, that would require directly investing in social and affordable housing, the government building it themselves on behalf of um, the, the, the public. But my sense is there's no hard and fast rule for these sorts of things. There's, there's something that I kind of that appeals to me in both of those, and that that makes me a bit of an institutional economist. And that's kind of the theory of econ economics that really landed well for me when I was doing my degree here. Institutional economics uh, doesn't really start from a premise of knowing how the world works. It says look at the institutions that shape your system, and there's your answer. That's how the world works. So understand where power resides and how power is used, and that will explain to you how your economy works. And so when we and, and it also explains to you who can make change to change the things you want changed and who is um, what do they need in order to make those changes. So this comes to my central thesis. Um, the vast majority of housing in Sydney and in Australia is delivered by the private sector, by private developers. So if we take an institutional lens on this and we say, well, they're the ones with the power to make the change and there aren't any real muscles in government to, to, to take action on this, then we must necessarily assume that they are the ones that need to be encouraged to make that change. Nicole stole my line, but, you know, uh, yesterday Landcom came out with a government announcement, we're taking action on housing, 300 homes a year, we're going to solve this problem. Um, it's a far cry from the 75,000 homes this city needs every single year. Um, 
We do have problems that the market is not currently solving. We're not delivering enough social and affordable housing. It's currently fitting, sitting at about 4% of, the, of the, um, the housing in this city. And you can look at other cities around the world, like London, that is less unaffordable. And it's more like 14 16% over there. The median income family can't afford the median house in this city. Something is out of whack. Things aren't going right. So we need to do something about it, but who's going to do it? Well, it's going to be the private sector. And if we need to, in order to motivate them to do that, understand what they need in order to do that, and that is profit. Private developers need to make a profit in order to build housing. It's a fairly simple, but I think essential point for us to bear in mind. Now, as luck would have it, it's actually quite easy to make to give developers a modest profit, and it is actually a relatively modest profit when you look at the stack of how they build their housing. It's about 5% a year, which is, you know, at the moment about what you get throwing your money in a bank account. So we can do that by unlocking the planning system, by incentivising a lot more housing, and in doing so, we can actually incentivise them to deliver some of that other housing that we want, the social and the affordable housing. They're the only ones that are going to build that social and affordable housing to get us from the 4% to the 14%, wherever it needs to be. They are the only ones with the power to make this change and the only way to deliver the housing that we need. So my opposition may well say that they, you know, if we wanted to solve this problem, we wouldn't start from where we are right now. But where we are right now is where we are, and where we are is a crisis. Unaffordable housing is costing this city $10 billion in productivity, talent loss and innovation loss every single year. 55,000 people are on the social housing waiting list. Enormous amounts of homelessness and homelessness increasing, overcrowding, pressures on our systems across the board. So let's put economic theory to one side and acknowledge the reality of how our housing system is structured right now and recognise that the only way to deliver the housing that we need and the supply that we need to solve the housing crisis is through the private sector delivering a lot more housing. Thanks. Oh, my God, seriously. <laughs> what can you say? What can you say? I mean... Such a funny proposition, right, that increasing supply will solve the housing problem. Um, that's a pretty big ask. We're going to solve a problem that I think everyone um, on the debate tonight will, will, uh, would regard as a um, serious um, problem. Um, Nicole and I have been banging on it for about, I don't know, 400 years. But um, uh, we suddenly think we can solve this problem just by supply. Increasing supply will solve the housing problem. Now, um, um, Professor of Planning, believe it or not, I'm also an economist, I do remember my first ever economics lecture and I did see a demand curve on the page there somewhere. It was like um, a long time ago. They still use overhead projectors. Um, New South Wales uh, University, University of New South Wales, 1973. But demand's also a part of the story. How can we solve a price issue just by supply? That's, that's what worries me. It's sort of like, it's like going into a you know, fight with... Um, one arm tied behind your back. It's like trying to have a debate with your teenagers, not allowed, teenage kids not allowed, being allowed to speak. You know, it's like, um, you know, having um, a dessert without um, anything to eat it with. It's like trying to read the Herald and only being able to read every second page. Like, it's, it's not really going to, going to solve the problem. Okay, it's important. We should have more supply, you know? I celebrate every time I see a crane in the sky, I think there's more housing coming into Sydney. For a while there, um, Alexandra had so many crown, uh, cranes, um, I, could hardly, um, I could hardly talk. I, I was so excited. At one stage, Sydney University had more cranes than the entire island of Tasmania, but let's not get into that. But, um, 
This is um, some recent evidence from um, a, a, a quite a renowned Australian housing economist, Peter Abelson. Um, he was previously the um, chief economist of the New South Wales Treasury. Um, he's written about um, housing for a very long time. He gave a paper a couple of months ago at the Australian Economist Conference. And this, I've just clipped something from his um, conclusion, okay? Increasing net annual housing completions by 25% will reduce house prices by around 1%. Okay, so, like... Holy hell, and his conclusion is this is far from providing all the solutions to housing that our society needs. Okay, so look, I think supply is important. We should do more of it. But if we think we're going to solve the problem just by supply alone, um, a lot of people are going to die before they actually um, end up with housing that's affordable. There'll be um, students, uh, all those terrible things, you know, people living in, in cars, um, it's a very um, serious problem. We can't just solve it by supply alone, okay? We've got to look at what's happening on the demand side of the curve. As um, my um, um, very beloved um, colleague from um, University of uh, Sydney, Judy Yates, said, what we've done to housing in Australia, we've loved it to death, right? We've, we've subsidised it within an inch of its life. We've privileged, privileged home ownership. We've given people such a free ride that on the, that's just really knocked things around on the demand side so much that we're in trouble, Okay, the other point I make is if your only strategy is supply, it's very hard to increase supply, okay? Like, we've seen that, okay? If, if, if it was just, you know, NIMBY's protesting or the planning system, we would have solved that a long time ago. At the moment, for instance, you'd be probably surprised to know there's thousands of approved apartments sitting in Sydney that haven't started, okay? They, they've actually, you know, by some miracle, managed to get through the New South Wales planning system. Um, they've got an approval. Um, <laughs> And the developer is sitting there, just sitting on their hands. Um, and the reason they're sitting on their hands is, they, as, as Eamon pointed out, they can't make any money out of the, out of the, out of the issue. That's not, not, hasn't got anything to do with the, the outrageous planning system. It's actually got to do with interest rates, the cost of finance, the cost of materials, uh, all those things, okay, that, that you know, aren't, aren't I'm just trying to put um, planning in the... In, in the um, in the focus. Um, I think there was a story in the age today that said in Victoria there's 122,000 dwellings that have been approved and not yet commenced. So if we're just going to talk about trying to fix the planning system supply, we're not going to get very far. Um, it also depends on what stock your new supply delivers. Okay, so just saying housing supply in a, in a crude sense will, will fix the problem. Okay, look, I'm a fan of um, filtering. Um, I think it does happen, but I think filtering happens so quickly, um, a lot of people are actually, um, they're, they're going to die before the, you know, the house is affordable in the, in the way that um, Max described in that New York case. So the supply of 500 new high-rise apartments in Edgecliff will have a pretty different impact than um, 500 social housing dwellings located um, across Sydney. And I think the other point, and um, Max also alluded to this, but um, I come from Hobart where um, the rental market's basically been gobbled up by um, short-term rentals. So if you increase housing supply and all that happens, they end up um, in the tourist accommodation market, um, which is um, quite likely in some cities, then you've done very little to solve the housing problem. You've helped the tourist industry, but um, renters are still um, in a pretty dire state. And let me just... Um, finish, um, talk a little bit about Auckland. 
Okay, sort of the poster child of um, the supply story. Um, Auckland, you know, let's, let's um, have a look what happens um, in a city where the planning system's regula regulated. And it goes to the point that Max brought up. Like every planning system's different, every um, housing market's different. Borrowing, borrowing from one city and saying, oh, okay, they, fixed the, they, they changed the planning system and house prices are cheaper or rents are cheaper, therefore we should do the same thing in, in Australia. Like if you go back and look at um, supply rates in Auckland in the um, middle of um, uh, the last decade, um, they're a basket case, right? Compared to Melbourne and Sydney, their rate of housing supply was probably half, um, half new stock for every, you know, a thousand extra people in that city. So I'm not surprised that um, uh, you, could generate a, you could generate a change like that in, in, um, in Auckland, but it's not the same as Sydney and Melbourne. Um, the, the planning systems are very different. The circumstances are different. The thing about Auckland that people forget, they get very excited about the supply side, but what was happening on the demand side in Auckland? So rents were, um, you know, rents came off in Auckland, but if you go and have a look actually the number of total rental bonds in, in Auckland, they actually went down um, in the last four or five years. Okay, so what, what you're seeing in that is just the interaction of supply and demand again. Um, Auckland's growth rate was more subdued than other cities. That was partly because of... Um, their response to COVID, it was more locked down than other cities. So it looked a bit like Melbourne compared to Sydney. Anyway, look, let's leave it there. Um, we should give a shout out to um, poor old Luke uh, in hospital, but um, let's um, see what else we can turn up in the debate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. You certainly uh, did your best to, you know, be up to Luke's champion debating um, standard. Look, I don't know about um, the audience, but my mind was being influenced as each speaker um, came up. So that was a great job. I'm now going to hand over to Michael for 10 minutes of intense questioning. Um, thanks, Nicole. Thanks very much. And thanks to everyone. Uh, I'm the Sydney editor of The Herald. Um, if you don't know, I write a lot about housing. Uh, I'm even bored myself of it really lately. But um, it's uh, great to see so many people um, out here to discuss it today. I want to start with the affirmative, uh, colloquially Team Yimby. We've talked a lot today about how, uh, and you have in fact talked about how, you know, the market builds most <coughs> of our homes and, you know, we, most of us live in private market homes. And that's obviously done uh, for profit. So I want to ask, even if we open the planning floodgates, relax the laws, why would for-profit developers build a single dwelling more than absolutely necessary to service demand at the maximum price? They're not going to build so much housing that they tank the price of their own product, are they? So are you, uh, sorry, just to paraphrase the question, you're saying that um, developers are going to hold on to product or they're not going to build to the maximum? Uh, well, yeah, I'm saying if you, if, if you release, uh, if, you, if you relax the planning laws, um, you know, make it more of a free-for-all, if, if I'm a private market developer, um, why would I seek to build more than strictly necessary to maintain the maximum price possible? Um, why would I build so much that it actually depresses the price? Yeah, well, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. I mean, and that's what we see today, right? I mean, we see supplies start to taper off as soon as 
prices start to taper off because all of a sudden the developers, you know, if they can, they will hold on to stock. Now, lots of developers, some developers can't hold on to stock um, or, or onto a piece of land and they have to develop it and make a loss or, or less than they thought. Um, but the answer to that isn't to not build the houses, it's to give you different options on what those houses are used for. So I should note, when I, when I talk about the private sector and profit, I, I include your community housing providers and people that are delivering you know, affordable housing. So that's one option, is you've got people who are delivering it um, and don't much care about how much they sell the property at the end because they plan to hold it and rent it out in an affordable sense. Build to rent is another option. You know, that's coming online as a model for Australia. But if you're renting the properties for, for 15 years, you don't much care whether the, um, the price of the, of the property collapses because you were never planning to sell it in the first place. So alternatives, alternative uses of those homes that still delivers a profit is the way to prop that up. you still got to build the houses. People still got to have places to live in. Sure, but if your if you, if your main argument in this debate is that developers need to be allowed to build more supply, it's a bit of a problem if there aren't any financial incentives there for them to actually do that. Well, one ideally, that the incentives are that they've got alternative ways to make a profit other than just selling it. As prices collapse, hopefully, yeah. as prices start to taper off or to to, to steady, there will be. Um, alternatives like build to rent, and ideally also we start to see costs go down, which means that prices can come down whilst profit is maintained. Um, I want to ask um, the negative, um, pretty much by the same token. Uh, I mean, we hear a lot, and we heard from you and we hear from a lot of others, that um, what we need is more supply of uh, uh, affordable housing and in particular social housing. Um, but I think we all accept that uh, while a lot of people do live in affordable housing and a lot of people live in social housing, most of us live in private market housing. So why is, it, why is supply good for social and affordable housing but not good or not as important for private market housing where most of us actually live? Um, yeah, I, I would argue that um, supply of private markets is incredibly important as well. Um, but if, you look, if you're actually looking at people in the, probably in the most need, um, uh, starting at the social and affordable housing end is, is pretty important. Um, for two reasons. Um, you know, a lot of those people are, are really struggling. They're under a lot of housing stress. They're under a lot of life stress. But the other thing, um, other thing you, you can do is um, markets filter upwards as well as downwards. So if you're taking some of those people out of um, you know, the private rental market, you're actually providing private stock for um, other households. So I, I argue both sides of the fence. But, yeah, I, I think... Um, I think you just got to have the right balance. And, it, you know, in Australia in the last 20 years, we just have built very little social and affordable housing um, and we've just focused on the private end of the story. And, I, I mean, I realise in a debate like this, we're kind of debating over a matter of degrees, right? No-one yeah. thinks supply is immaterial. Um, but if you say, you know, building... Uh, boosting the supply of market housing is, as you just said, incredibly important, what is the one thing, then, that the negative believes is more important than supply? Um, I, uh, to, to, actually, to actually stimulate supply, we've actually got to get the price of detached housing down, right, in the, the, in, in the city market. People are talk, but talk about um, trying to build townhouses and um, trying to build small apartment blocks. They're just not feasible with, the, with um, private housing at, at, at that market point. And 
you know, it, one of the reasons um, housing is expensive is because it's um, subsidised so much, you know. So um, I think it's just a matter of time before there's a capital gains tax on um, detached housing in Australia. Once we've got more renters and homeowners, I think the renters will vote that in. Um, the money from the capital gains tax will, will um, go to increase supply. We've just done everything to make housing um, more expensive. Look at... Um, Look at Home Builder during um, COVID. We had a chance for actually let the market calm down. Um, everyone like panicked. Oh my God, house prices might go down. The banks game the system by claiming house prices are going to go down 30%. And we just threw money at the market to um, try and stimulate the housing market. And what we did was we absolutely crushed building costs that we're still paying the, the price for. If I can add, add something really quick. Yeah, real quick. So I'll just say really quickly, like the idea of built to rent as some new technology that's just taking off here by world standards is really laughable. And so you create housing as an investment asset for individuals through things like negative gearing. And so the entire system in terms of thinking about this as an asset rather than thinking about it as a, as a form of where people actually live needs to change. Um, I just want to go back to now to the affirmative. Um, I mean, I want to give you a chance to respond to... Um, uh, this idea that, uh, and you know, backed by evidence, that uh, all right, if you wanted to uh, increase, uh, and forgive me if I'm summarising, if I got it down wrong, but if, if you want to achieve a one percent reduction in rents or in house prices, you need to increase supply by twenty. 20, 25. 20 yeah, yeah, right. Uh, I think I think there was a kind of murmur of a, you know sort of agreement there. There's a bit of scepticism that you know. Uh, to come back to my previous question, that you know, if you actually ramp up supply, it's going to make any difference on price. I'd like to get you to respond to that. And also, you mentioned uh, a statistic that um, uh, in New South Wales, at least, 68% of a dwelling price was down to planning restrictions. Now, are you seriously telling us that if I pay a million dollars for a house, $680,000 of that is because of planning restrictions? I don't think anyone in this audience would believe that. <laughs> So, so I will leave it to the panel. Um, I'll, well, I'll, I'll respond on the first one. Um, look, house prices went up by, let's say, 19% in Sydney in the last year. So one, one, house prices going down by 1% as a comparison to 19% increases sounds great to me. That's a 20% differential. And we don't want to increase supply by 25% in Sydney. We need to double it. We need to increase it by 100%. So on my mass... If we're going to make up... You know, that would be an 80% reduction in house prices. That sounds fantastic. Now, I don't think that's reality, but I would note that, you know, a 1% reduction sounds bad, but in comparison to the meteoric rise we've been seeing over recent years, that sounds delightful. <laughs> um, and, and to the negative, um, uh, Peter, I mean, you spoke about needing to not look at just at supply but at demand. Um, what do you actually propose to do about reducing demand for houses, which we all need to live in? Uh, are you planning on stopping people having as many children? Are you planning on cutting migration? What would you do to reduce demand for houses? Um, I, I think, like, I think one of the one of, one of the things is um, we we're looking at essentially a lot of people that are just upgrading, right? So um, they got a house. Um, it's such a great uh, tax shelter. They just go and buy another house in a more expensive suburb, 
right? So in, in terms of the number of dwellings, uh, the, sorry, the number of bedrooms, the size of the house, it, you know, it might be the same house, all they've done is they've just gone for a higher status um, suburb um, and that's one of the things that I'd be trying to, um, to, to knock out through something like um, uh, a, a capital gains tax, for instance, in the fullest time, I think it'd be a good idea. Um, and I want to throw, I'll throw a last one out um, to, to both teams, really. Um, I think, uh, you know, it, we all sit here and we hope that maybe uh, uh, one day property will be um, more affordable. Um, what uh, do you think is actually achievable? Um, are you saying on the affirmative that if we, um, if we you know, unlock the gates of, of supply um, and, and uh, relax the planning laws and, you know, go for broke, that house prices are actually going to come down um, or just down, you know, relative to wages? And the same on the negative. Um, you know, if we uh, go down a path of negative gearing reform, um, if we go down a path of tax reform, are you actually suggesting to people that property prices could come down? Or is that actually... What, are, what, what do you think is within the realm of the possible here? I'll throw it open to anyone. Yeah, I would say that I, I would like to see something similar like what we saw in Auckland, where we saw rents and prices start to stabilise. They didn't come down, but relative to other parts of the country, the rents did not increase as as crazy as like what we're seeing here in Sydney, for example. So I think if we did release the planning um, controls and allow more development, I think it needs to happen at a city-wide basis like we saw in New Zealand, because what that means is that more competitors can come into the market, so it's no, not mono, mono, monopolistic. We do have more competition that keeps prices down. Smaller developers building that kind of density that we want to see in our cities, they can't afford to hold on to properties, and they wouldn't if, if it's a highly competitive market. So this is what we want to see, and I think, I think, as I said, yeah, at best I think we can hope to see rents stabilise and not increase like they have been here in Sydney. Negative? What's the best we can hope for? I mean, you said it, get rid of negative gearing. It's an absolutely regressive tax. It's not that people shouldn't own investment property. It's that people should be taxed for it. And it should be something that's hard to do, not incentivized. All right, I will um, throw back to Nicole. Thank you very much. Wow. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael. I can't tell you how much I'm glad I was sitting there and not there. Um, well done, debaters, and you're hard, Michael, in the best possible way. Now, I'm just giving my speakers a little bit of a moment to organise their final thoughts because the stakes are getting very high. I can actually feel the tension in the room. I'm getting antsy. I nearly had to call in my bouncer um, a moment ago. We were hearing some audience heckling, but I think we can hold on, people. What's going to happen now? is each of our speakers, and we're going to go in order with Melissa first and then Max and then Eamon and then Peter, up to two minutes. Tibetan Bell will ring you off at two minutes and that'll be it. You'll have to stop immediately, but you don't need to talk through to the bell. And then at that point, audience, we're going to ask you again. Hopefully you've maintained an open mind right up until Peter's last word. And then we're going to poll you again. You're going to get your phones out. There'll be a new poll. 
and we'll be asking you um, again what you think about the proposition. Then we'll call the results. We will cheer the victors and, you know, slay the, uh, the people who lose and then we'll all go and make friends out there with some wine. All right. Melissa, are you ready? Yes. Over to you. Thank you. Um, I just want to really touch on that point about the market not delivering the type of housing that we want. The market is going to respond to the policies that are set by government. And the great thing about good planning policies is that we can get quality housing and in the locations that we want. And so I think it's really important that we remember that interaction between the market um, and uh, government setting policies. Um, we need to really factor the market realities into the system. So we do need, while there may be a whole lot of planning approvals out there, they're not all going to be able to be acted upon. And so it's important that we really increase the number of approvals that are being allowed through the system. That's where we need to loosen the controls and allow way more planning approvals because that's going to then allow us to get those houses on the ground after all the other market realities are factored in because that's what we have to do to get the housing we need. Um, and I just want to also touch on something that I didn't get a chance to touch on earlier that I think is really interesting. Um, the market and it's more, uh, allowing more supply, research is actually showing that it can improve homelessness and, uh, and uh, help the people that are homeless. So um, typically, and co like contrary to conventional belief, we think that things like mental illness or drug use or um, all other factors like low incomes uh, impact homelessness. But what they're finding and what research is finding that the main determinants of the rate of homelessness are actually the average levels of, of rents and vacancy rates. So the more supply that we put into the system, it does actually filter down. So I think it's important that we remember the market can be a solution and it is our best solution here in, in Australia. And so we need to support it to be able to do what it does best. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. You avoided the Tibetan bell. Max? Yeah, you know, I want to echo some of that, which is I do think that a lot of what we're thinking about is where people live and how they live and what kind of housing. And when we're having this debate, a lot of what we're talking about is actually getting people to live in apartments. And I say that as a foreigner and as a New Yorker, um, and that's a big hang-up here in Australia. People don't like um, apartments. They've embraced the kind of Australian dream of the single-family detached home even more than Americans in some sense. Um, so getting past that kind of cultural stigma and getting people into apartments is really important. That's a regulatory problem in terms of planning. But when you loosen planning alone, you're still going to get the big tract houses. You're still going to get suburbs that are only accessible by car. And it's going to have to be a lot more than that. It's going to have to be um, both uh, planning reform. It's going to take community housing. And also, more than anything, it's going to take government investment in infrastructure, in subsidizing people to not have cars, to sell apartments that don't have parking spaces included with them, gasp. I know this is a terrible thing for most people to contemplate. Um, and also, you know, I'll say as a sociologist and not as urban planner, it's going to actually take some sort of cultural reorientation um, where people live in this weird imported concept of stacked housing or whatever kind of euphemism they try to sell you on apartments. Um, because what people need in order to solve this crisis is going to have to involve living closer together and having a new sense of neighborliness in some fashion. Thank you. Okay. Eamon, your time starts now. Um, cities are constantly changing things. 
None of us get to decide that our community stops changing. None of us gets to say that the, the area that I live in is great for me and therefore there will be no more change. That's at the core thesis of a YIMBY concept, right? It's that you, no one gets to say, well, I no longer accept change in my backyard. I'm okay with change, just not in my backyard. And, you know, this idea that we need to move from sprawl to apartments, I so fundamentally agree on. But what is the thing stopping that from happening? It's the NIMBYs. It's the people saying, no, I don't want apartments in my backyard. I would rather that those people's homes, you know, rack off 80 kilometres away to the, to the fringes of our city that are 55 degrees on a bloody September day. Like, this is a NIMBY, you know, distraction from the core premise that is we, want, we need to build a lot more houses and those houses need to, yes, be in well-located, well-situated places. There are other NIMBY distractions that have been talked about by my opponents. They have talked about tax reform. They have talked about direct funding. I think those things would be great. Maybe they would work. But this is not about what in a magical fairy world would be the thing that would fix, fix the housing problem. It's what will fix the housing problem in the world that we live in. And the reality is that the politics of tax reform are significantly harder than the politics of supply. The politics of direct funding for housing are significantly harder than the politics of direct supply. I, if, if I thought that tax reform was the most... Um, reasonable way to achieve this outcome with my institutional hat on, then that would be the one I'd be up here arguing on. But it just isn't. I wish it was because, geez, that'd be simple if there was this simple thing we could do that was kind of vague and ephemeral and regulatory and off in the distance that none of us really felt in our day-to-day -day life. But this, unfortunately, is going to be a really hard thing that every single one of our communities is going to have to experience. And it's going to be tough for us because our communities are going to change. But it is unfortunately, I wish it wasn't, but it is unfortunately the thing that must happen to solve this problem. Thank you. Professor Peter Phibbs. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to finish with a, um, a, a a quote from a famous Australian um, actor. But like, Eamon, like, telling me a dream, and like, how are you going to double housing supply? Right? You, you think you can actually double supply in a city now? You've got to deal with um, developers. And Michael made a very good point. Like, if you're a developer and you've got a piece of land that's going up in value every year, as soon as you sell it, you've lost all those future options. What do developers do? They sit on it. Our six largest publicly listed private housing developers in Australia have got 11 years of housing supply in their land banks. 11 years, right? And when you go read their annual reports, what they tell their shareholders, their plan is to drip that stock out into the market to maintain price pressure to generate profits for their shareholders. Like, what private sector um, animal is going to flood the market, double supply, reduce prices? Has that ever happened? I don't think so, you know? I don't know what you guys are smoking on that table, but, you know... <laughs> Maybe you should stop it. Like, do you think the banks are going to lend money to developers to drive the price down and increase the risk on their retail, retail mortgage portfolio? Like, why can't we, we've got seriously thousands of apartment approvals at the moment? Developers can't get construction finance from banks. 
Like, you know, there's so many gatekeepers other than NIMBYs. Like, seriously, I was professor of planning. I used to get so many phone calls from NIMBYs in Sydney complaining about reforms to the planning system. They've lost their power. They can't actually go lobby a councillor anymore. They've got to go talk to an expert on a planning panel. Like, there might be a lot of NIMBYs in Melbourne, um, and there's a lot of people that talk to NIMBY gain. Their, their ability to actually influence supply outcomes has changed radical through reforms to the planning system. And I can see some people in the audience that like the good old days, you know, when they could, um, you know, go and barrel up their local councillor and um, tell them that uh, they're going to organise for the next election. So I just think it's just a fantasy to think that you can solve it just with supply alone. And um, please, stop me now. Uh, thank you, the bell! <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> we have to stop it just when it's getting good, right? <laughs> Look, um, I, we can have the poll. We're going to invite people to um, vote again as that's coming up. I just want to say um, about our speakers, and you can fuss around with your phones while I'm saying this, debates do force us to argue very extreme positions. And yet our four speakers manage to both engage with that um, debate, I guess, artif artificial uh, format, while also delivering some really important nuanced analysis, I think, across our four speakers and particularly guided as well um, with Michael's expert questions, we actually did start to scratch a little bit deeper and pulled out some of the things that might genuinely start to fix things. But, of course, that's a long conversation. And right now, um, I'm very keen to find out the results of the poll. How are we going, um, pollster? Now, the first round of results we're going to show you is the pre-debate poll results. And they are? Ah. So we had a pretty strong support for supply, fixing the housing problem. Interesting. All right. Now, let's see who has won hearts and minds. What were the results post the debate? <gasps> Whoa, well, it's pretty clear. What was that? All we had to do was double housing supply to get out. <laughs> to get a 4%, what, um, what would we call that, economist? A 4% um, growth? Oops. Five. Margin of error. We call that a margin of error. I think the, um, the yes side have it. And how many people did the um, no side pick up or lose? Oh, we've got some people here who are saying they didn't vote. We won't ask you what you would have voted. We'll give the yes side their victory. We'll be debating about this for years. By the time Luke gets out of hospital, we will be able to tell you how many minds yes team won or lost and vice versa. But the debate has been carried by the Yes team. Congratulations, it was wonderful. And thank you to Michael for his adjudic adjudication and thank you for being, you know, mostly a fairly respectful and well-behaved audience. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast series from the Festival of Urbanism. Make sure you check out all the panel discussions at cityroadpod.org. See you next time. Thank you.